0: I'm going to stand in front here because I do want to see dear Richard and dear Andrew on in the far corners. So we'll go through that. And thanks for that introduction, Rod. That pretty much um, first couple pages we are pretty much done there. Um, Which is which is no, it's excellent. And yeah, we are literally going to go over this in detail now. For those who weren't here two weeks ago when we started Acts, uh, we're basically going through this book uh, on mass. So we've got the first two uh, chapters, chapter one and two. I'm doing in a little bit more depth because they are such a preface towards the rest of the book. After this week we are gonna cruise through the thing and we're not gonna do a lot of preaching. It's gonna be really more reading. All right, because we want to let the scripture do the talking in this and very specifically because we we need to hold scripture in a way that looks back at us in a mirror. We've kinda given that analogy a little bit in the book of James. And said if we look at a mirror, can we can see what kind of man we are or woman we are. And we literally want to look in a mirror and actually go, is our Christian experience lining up with this? And to do that, we need to actually understand that is Acts actually representative at all? Because I remember, you know, back when I was young, you you have this prevailing thought amongst certain circles that, you know, Acts is great. It's a little time boxed historical capsule. Very good for them. Very valuable, but certainly not for today. And if we're going to read Acts with that mindset, um, it's going to take away something from it, I believe. So what we want to do uh, is we actually want to look at this book of Acts like it's living. Though they were talking and recounting events that were happening even today. And I'm going to give you some examples today to kind of illustrate why I believe it is still relevant for today. Um, So we're going to go through the book together. Um, We are reading from the NIV. Um, You're here for Paul's message. It's just a nice middle-of-the-road kind of translation that will hopefully be helpful so if you did bring an niv translation you'll be able to read along with me there's a lot of reading today so let's do that but um otherwise i'll put bits and pieces up on the uh on the slide projector and you can listen to me so that's fine but let me just pray again if that's all right heavenly father we come before you now and just in awe of you and in awe of the power of your word lord and i pray that we come alive this morning i pray that you would speak to us lord because there are there are trees in here. There's a message in here for us, I believe, and even for myself, Lord. I pray that you would speak it to us, Lord, that we would hear it and that we would be changed, Lord, and that we would enter into all the fullness that you have for us in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So as uh, Rod mentioned, Acts two one, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And as a real quick recap, if you weren't here two weeks ago, Rod basically said it, but by the time you get to this point, there's a lot of expectation on the part of these disciples, seem to be apostles, seem to be sent. They, had, they knew of the prophecy in Joel, that God would one day pour out his spirit. It's very different to where the spirit had been kind of given for times upon old people in the past, but now it's going to be poured out, and it's going to be poured out on all flesh. It's going to happen to everyone. So they've got this expectation already from the Old Testament. And then we went through examples where Jesus was describing, look, if anyone thirsts, Come to me and drink, because I am going to give you rivers of living water. Whoever comes, whoever believes in me, rivers of living water will flow out of him. And he had told the disciples, wait in Jerusalem, as Rod mentioned. You've got the message, but you need to be endued with power from on high. And so they are waiting quite expectantly. And we know that from the end of Luke and and Acts that they are joyful and that they are constantly in prayer. And I guess two themes come straight out of this. On the day of Pentecost came, they were all together, the whole lot of them, so this was not going to be just an individualistic experience, it was going to be on everyone, and they had been praying, they'd been, just uh, previously we have been talking that they were constantly in prayer, so in this lead up they were united and they were constantly in prayer. Now I mentioned that I kind of want to demonstrate how is this relevant to today, particularly when you go, well, you know, this is the first time, you know, it's, well, there's some differences, and I've been reading a lot over the last few months, especially since God did a work in me late last year, and I just have been really encouraged by a lot of testimonies of individuals, but there's one particular that stood out, and I'm gonna share that today in parallel with the axe reading. It happened about 300 years ago, so it's a good example, because it's not like, oh, it just happened you know, a year ago, and then you think it's all phony. No, this is quite well-recorded, it's 300 years ago. It's not so old ago, that you go, well, it's disconnected, because they're in the same kind of age we are. And it's, to concern, it's concerning this group called the Moravians, has anyone heard of the Moravians? Just if I a hand. Yeah, cool, right. So I'm, there'll be a little bit of background for everyone else, so we'll just do that very quickly. Um, the Moravians were essentially followers of John Huss, if you will, who was a, a martyr from the 1600s. And by the 1700s, they were quite well persecuted. And there was this small group of them, uh, of these followers, in northern Moravia. That's the little secondary red country on the, the bottom right southeast uh, in that map so in central europe now modern-day Czechoslovakia, and they were, had been very persecuted They were actually an underground illegal church um so and a lot, a lot of these people had died in the past hundred years um, so they were seeking refuge and they got in touch with this guy called count zinzendorf in saxony and he had kind of pledged to himself that he wanted to be helping the poor and needy and when these people came to him seeking refuge he said okay that's fine he's a count he's got some lands he actually let and there's about 300 of them or so, as we understand. Uh, they came and settled on his land and created a little uh, refugee village, basically, called Hernhut. And so we're told, um, <laughs> we're kind of recounting, it's a very inconsequential group of people. It's only a few hundred, it's not a great number. Quoting um, one historian, so they were, humanly speaking, totally devoid of worldly influence. They were any wisdom, power, and wealth. Quite insignificant in, in the scheme of things. And funny enough, uh, this happened in 1722, um, and for five years or so, it was all right, except that uh, a bit like modern day, there was a lot of denominations in there. You've got Moravian, Lutheran, Reformed, Baptist, and they were actually getting into quite the pickle with each other over the various theological differences. And this is quite important as the lead-up here. Um, over that, After about five years, Count Zinzendorf um, got a number of them together, and they covenanted that they're going to essentially become united, they're going to put aside various theological differences, they created an agreement around those things that they agreed were were common to them and they agreed that they would not only be united but they would pray and labour towards that effect. And so it started a period, and this happened in in May of 1727, of of a lot of prayer amongst them and and a remarkable unity. And there's this one particular day on 13th of August, about two months after that event when they signed this agreement um, and I've actually got a quote here when he was recounting it many years later and he said, we needed to come to the communion with a sense of the loving nearness of the saviour. The communion was the event that they'd kind of come and gather together for. This was the great comfort which was made this day a generation ago to be a festival because on this day 27 years ago the congregation of Hernhut, assembled for communion, were all dissatisfied with themselves. They had quit judging each other because they had become convinced each one of his lack of worth in the sight of God and each felt himself at this communion to be in view of the noble countenance of the Saviour. Just give you a little preface of where they were at. They were highly dissatisfied with themselves. They had put aside all their differences because they were all dissatisfied with themselves and had quit judging because they were convicted of their own lack of worth in the sight of God. So there was this sense of unity Mildly depressing, you might say, but there was nonetheless a very real sense of unity and understanding that we're, we're majorly shortfalling here, and notwithstanding their heritage. You know, there was a shortfall, but they were united and they were in prayer. And funny enough, where do we see the disciples? In Acts 2, verse 1, they're united, they're in prayer, and they're all together. So now can, we can read let's there of the experience. If you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 2. when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and, and Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, quite the list. <laughs> We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. So this is the event they had all been waiting for, and I dare say, with the amount of expectation they had, they would have been expecting quite something, and it was quite something. We're told this Holy Spirit, like fire, came upon their heads. And it is an amazing thing. It's, it's something that is clearly evident to everyone else as well. You, you can, everyone can see what's going on, and it spills out into the streets, and everyone is observing. It's sli- slightly crazy, as some people would point out the, uh, in, in Mocket. But it was certainly very evident that something dramatic had happened to these people. Notice they don't. The passage doesn't tell us how they individually felt. We're kind of given this really overarching sense of it. And that is something, the nature of the work of the Holy Spirit can sometimes be hard to describe what's happening inside of you, but you can see the effects outside very much. And again, in terms of looking at these Moravians, they weren't necessarily expecting this kind of thing necessarily. Uh, We're not told that. But on that day, when they were gathered at this communion, Something extremely similar happened. A Moravian historian, one of the people there, who was writing back, reflecting on it. We saw the hand of God and his wonders, and we were all under the cloud of our fathers, baptised with their spirit. The Holy Ghost came upon us, and in those days great signs and wonders took place in our midst. From that time, scarcely a day passed, but what we beheld his almighty workings amongst us. It's a very brief snapshot of what he said it happened. Uh, Reverend John Greenfield's uh, done a fair bit of... Um, I gets work on this on this group and he, he says exactly what happened that wednesday forenoon. Uh, it's, it's in this specially called communion service none of the participants could fully describe they left the house of god that noon hardly knowing whether they belonged to earth or had already gone to heaven that's the kind of description they're giving it they just do it's hard to to explain what happened and then what's even more remarkable and zinzendorf again recounting it it's, it's uh, he gives us the deepest and most vivid account of this wonderful occurrence It says, it was a sense of the nearness of Christ, a sense of the nearness of Christ, bestowed in a single moment upon all the members that were present. It's interesting, isn't it? Unanimous. All the members. And it was so unanimous that two members at work 20 miles away, unaware the meeting was being held, became at the same time deeply conscious of the same blessing. And I find that quite remarkable. There's about 300 of them, two of them not there, and they're experiencing such was the unanimity of this occasion that they experienced it also just like we read in Acts 2.4 before, all of them were filled. It's really hard to describe a lot of these experiences, and you know, when you have an experience of the Holy Spirit for yourself, even that can be really hard to convey to someone who hasn't had that before. Um, you know, here they're struggling to describe it. They're talking about a nearness to Christ and a, you know, not knowing if they're on heaven or earth. And, but I, I was just reading the other day, and I'm gonna share this with Thomas, this guy called Blaise Pascal. He's heard of him great mathematician, genius, 1600s, yeah, really intelligent guy. Towards the end of his life, and it was a young life, they didn't live long back then, uh, but towards the end of his life, he had a fairly dramatic change. Like He kind of sort of retired from a lot of his mathematic works and devoted himself to basically religious activity for the last few years. Afterwards, they found a little, in, in his coat pocket after he died, he'd sewn in this little fragment of a, a, of a script, a memoriam. And uh, it's essentially, he just writes the Year of Grace, 1654, Monday, 23rd November, from about half past 10 until about half past midnight. And he recounts this most incredible experience, and really primitive, and this is translated from French, so it's, it doesn't come across entirely you know, fluent, but it's just, he just says, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ. Joy, 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 tears of joy, I've departed from him. They've forsaken me, they found a living water. My God, will you leave me? This is eternal life to know you, God. I left him, I fled him, renounced, crucified, and let me never be separated from him. And he just goes on with all these kind of little statements of this experience that happened over those two hours. I so thought it was a really beautiful capture, because again, if we're talking about an experience of the Holy Spirit and we haven't had it, it's really hard to describe. You know, this is a good little example, and I just want us to get a little bit of a feel for what it happens, because we can see the observable, bit, but what happens to us? And again, when we're looking at Acts and we're going to see the outcome of this event, what we're asking in looking at a mirror is, Is this happened to us? Should we expect it for ourselves? So the I guess one of the great purposes, and it's certainly not the only purpose which the Holy Spirit was given, but uh, right towards the end, Jesus tells them, uh, wait until you're in with power from on high. And he says, and then you're going to be witnesses to me from Judea, Samaria, and to the entire ends of the earth. And we know a large reason, uh, or a significant, if not primary purpose for the Holy Spirit was evangelism, and we're going to see that immediately. Um, let's read from verse 14. This is a decent passage and I'm, I'm not going to add much to it. We're just going to read through this because it's this just a beautiful uh, presentation of the gospel. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel in the last days God says I'll pour out my spirit on all people your sons and daughters will prophesy your young men will see visions your old men will dream dreams even on my servants both men and women I'll pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy I'll show wonders in the heaven above and signs in the earth below blood and fire and billows of smoke the Sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's straight out of Joel. We read that. Uh, I introduced, actually, the series uh, two weeks ago with that very passage. Uh, this is the culmination. If there's any doubt about what he meant, it's here. And you find the New Testament writers, and John, they're always saying, now, this is the event. When Jesus is talking about those rivers of living water, um, he it makes it clear he's talking about the Holy Spirit that is going to come. So let's continue from Verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, you will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised to him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne seeing what was to come he spoke of the resurrection of the messiah that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead nor did his body see decay god has raised this jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it exalted to the right hand of god he was received from the father he has received from the father the promised holy spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear i always find it amazing how he um just is recounting scripture and quoting it so effortlessly and this. this is flowing so naturally from him first we're talking about this is the holy spirit given per joel and then he points to this jesus that they had crucified and he goes back and says not only were we witnesses to the fact that he's resurrected but here's the proof in scripture that it was going to happen and it's always great that when god does work in people you can go back to scripture and say here is the proof this is what we what is we're experiencing it is indeed something that's true and now he talks of this Spirit is also true. He says, Exalted the right hand of God. He, Jesus, has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and he has poured out what you now see and hear. Let's continue from verse thirty-four. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And what's so beautiful about this is that if you like one of the first gospel presentations we actually get in some kind of format where we can see how it's presented and what, where does it start? The whole thing is pointing fingers. It's about like you knew this. You saw him. You crucified him. And they were cut to the heart. we'll see similarly when when we get some other sermons, this is not an uncommon thing, to be cut to the heart by the gospel that's being preached. But Peter replied, well not but, but Peter replied, this is the response, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. That is the element of salvation. And John said, Behold the Lamb of God He takes away the sin of the world, there is salvation. But then he says, and you will receive the gift of the holy spirit that is the second part of john's observations this is john the baptist when he was when he saw that he who comes after me will baptize with the Holy spirit verse 39 the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off for all whom the lord our god will call and that is beautiful because notice how he ties salvation and the holy spirit together straight away and straight away he says this promises for you and your children and for all who are far off. And there's no question in my mind that this is the age that we still live in. When we looked at the prophecy in Joel, it was quite clear. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is the age we live. We can call on his name and be saved. And that is the same age by which his Holy Spirit is granted to us. And so it says in verse 40, With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Wow. So no sooner does it fall and then already the gospel is being preached. In fact, it's pretty much instantaneous. I find that quite remarkable. Uh, The the immediate impact, and as we say, this is the birth of the church. 3,000 added to their number that day. So we know this is clearly a significant purpose in the gospel, that this is what the Holy Spirit's given for, is to proclaim it. Some of you here, because I'm talking here, assuming most of you are saved, but I don't want to make that assumption. If you have not been saved and you've gone, what on earth is this Holy Spirit that you're talking about? Let's first talk about the gospel very, very briefly. When he says we're cut to the heart, it's because that we have grieved God and that we have sinned against him, and that's what cuts us to the heart. And it requires repentance And belief in the name of Jesus to overcome that and we're told that when we believe that he gives us a new heart and that he forgives us and that he brings us back into right relationship for God with God that is the fundamental of the gospel and the part two that we're talking about today is what happens when the Holy Spirit comes and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit now looking at how the gospel is preeminent in the way um, when the Holy Spirit came, and we're going to read a lot of this in Acts, it's a great to reflect back on ourselves and go, Is the Gospel got the same measure of uh, conviction inside of us? Has got the same level of proclamation? Because that is one of the the evidences that the Holy Spirit had indeed moved. If we go back to that Moravian example. Bear with me for just a moment while we, we do that again. So we talked briefly about this day where quite remarkable they find it hard to describe but something dramatic happened is it just some weird experience and that's the end of it leftovers yeah but no let's see what actually happens 300 members from hern hut john greenfield says from this place after their baptism with the holy spirit they became the world's evangelists and missionaries the world's evangelists and missionaries what's probably not known we, we kind of look at uh, you know, missions work today, and go, okay, well, when did that really start? You know, we know a bit about Protestant history. I'm sure most people have heard of Martin Luther at some point. That didn't really bring about evangelism initially. Um, In fact, Simon, who who would you say is the father of modern missionary (laughs) stuff? There you go. Yeah, I think William Carey, I think, is roughly attributed. Yeah, so, um, but this is before all that, right? And, in fact, it's quite well argued that these are actually the first group that ever sent missionaries from the Protestant church. And we're told within the first five years they were sending them out, they, were, they f- first sent, went to the Negroes in the West Indies. So it wasn't even next door, this is the Negroes in West Indies. Remember the 1700s, that's not normal, right, to, to head out these places. And then we went to, to Greenland and there was an ex- absolute explosion of missionary work. Yeah. We said in the following 30 years, and we think about the way Acts happened, within 30 years of the Pentecost, the gospel had, it had gone to the ends of the earth for all intents and purposes. Funny enough, these guys weren't far off. During the first three decades after their spiritual Pentecost, they carried the gospel of salvation by the blood of the Lamb, not only to nearly every country in Europe, but also to many pagan races in America, North and South, Asia and Africa. America at this time was a tough place. This is really, really early. So they were going to the extreme ends of the, the earth as far as we're concerned. Um, When I mentioned William Carey before, he read about these guys, um, and he had a pamphlet, so this is before he had really started those first um, evangelistic mission-based organisations. He slammed it down at a meeting, apparently, on the table, and he said, See what the Moravians have done! Cannot we follow their example and, in obedience to our heavenly Master, go out into the world and preach the gospel to the heathen? He was looking to these people, because they had led such an example. A German historian said, This small church, remembering only 300 people, it it was a congregation, not much bigger than this this small church in 20 years called into being more missions than the whole evangelical church has done in two centuries in fact we're told uh it, i believe it gets upwards of a, over a thousand missionaries from this congregation which is, is absolutely astounding there's a uh a dr thomas Char- oh, sorry dr thomas charmer one of scotland's great preachers many years later uh, had this really eloquent passage and it was just beautiful so i wanted to read it so you you'll you'll forgive me for that It is now a century since they have had intercourse with men in the infancy of civilization. During that time, they've been laboring in all the different quarters of the world and have succeeded in reclaiming many a wild region to Christianity. One of their principles in carrying on the business of missions is not to interfere with other men's labors, and thus it is that one so often meets with them among the outskirts of the species, making glad some solitary place and raising a sweet vineyard in some remote and unfrequented wilderness. Oh, and when one looks at the number and greatness of their achievements, when he thinks of the change they have made on materials so coarse and unpromising, when he eyes the villages they have formed, and he witnesses the love and listens to the piety of reclaimed savages, who would not long to be in possession of the charm by which they have wrought this wondrous transformation? Who would not willingly exchange it for all the parade of human eloquence and all the confidence of human argument? This was a real grassroots movement. They had had this experience at launch and the Moravians would always point back to it and you saw in some of those uh, recounts by Zinzendorf, they talk about that was the day it all changed, this modern day Pentecost. So as we continue, there's more, we've got the gospel outreach and then we also have uh, this next phase from verse 42 in Acts, which I call endearment. I've actually got it up on screen because it fit for this one. So it's just the end of the chapter. Let's read verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising god and enjoying the favor of all the people and the lord added to their number daily those who were being saved that's got to be one of the most beautiful passages to see the absolute dramatic change not only in the apostles but also in the people who had been saved and you just see those things they devoted themselves to teaching straight off the bat and it so frequent. i mean it's kind of that's all they really want now every day give give us more um funny when they quoted the moravians instantaneously on that day straight after it says a great hunger after the word of god took possession of us so that we had to have three services every day that's what happens when the when the spirit moves it's incredible hunger for him would you go i mean look reality is you guys are going to struggle with me speaking 40 minutes if i go that long hopefully not um that's the natural appetite of the mind but when the spirit's there it's insatiable absolutely insatiable a great hunger after the word of god a tremendous love for each other i love this uh, a lot of people re- uh, moravians recounting that day wouldn't necessarily even talk about the drama of the, the experience because that's not really what it's about it's not the momentary experience it was the impact it had on them and they said that was the day they learned to love one another they'd obviously had this great work of unity coming up to them they said that was the day through the Holy Spirit, they learned to truly want, love one another. And it's funny, isn't it, in Acts, you're seeing on this pretty much instantaneously, they're doing extraordinary things out of love for each other. They're selling everything they have and, and having everything in common, such as their love for each other. And this tremendous sense of joy that overwhelmed them. I know that's def- desperately needed in our time. A joy, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people and I guess the other remarkable thing that came out of that day, just looking at the Moravian experience as well, is that they started a watch prayer. About 24 of them, a couple of weeks after this event, said that we're going to commit to praying an hour a day each on a rotating watch. So 24-7 they'd be offering intercession to God. That ran out uninterrupted for, uh, I guess, Rod, how many years? About 100 years, yeah. 100 years of 24-7 from this small congregation. I find that quite remarkable. And reality is we look at this and go what happened to those disciples you know, there's this event that came upon them and the outpouring of love for each other and of the gospel and the way it spread in acts and the way we see these kind of more modern day if i call 300 years ago's modern day examples i find it inspiring i find it very challenging i, I look at my life and go there's something you know we, we have not yet come to this place and in looking back at that acts um When we just look at the way Peter Preacher said, this promises for you and your children and all who are far off, I can't help but say, well, where where is it for us? This is something we we ought to be seeking. (laughs) Count Zindendorf said, he he describes it very directly for the the Moravians. He says, this was the day of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the congregation. It's Pentecost. Hitherto, we had been the leaders and helpers Now the Holy Spirit himself took full control of everything and everybody. That's what I want for us. That the Holy Spirit wouldn't take control of everything and everybody. Well, this quote from D.L. Moody, because it kind of sums up, I guess that one of the points I'm trying to make here, which is this is for today. I don't want to put acts in a box, treat it like an obscure 2,000-year-old history, but like the living example that it is. D.L. Moody said, See how he came on the day of Pentecost. It is not carnal to pray that he may come again, that the place may be shaken. I believe Pentecost was but a specimen day. I think the church has made this woeful mistake that Pentecost was a miracle never to be repeated. I've thought too that Pentecost was a miracle that is not to be repeated. I believe now if we looked on Pentecost as a specimen day and began to pray, we should have the old Pentecostal fire here in Boston. The Moravians are an example to this and it's many others as well. In fact, you look at the Moravians and their impact on the the Wesleys and Whitfield, they had a very similar thing at Fetter Lane Um, some some years later, this kind of Pentecost experience and that's what I'm praying for today. So my desire is that we would look at this and not just try and gloss it over, that we would look and reflect on our own lives. Is this indeed for us? If so, what do we do about it? We've been given lots of clues in the the lead up to this around the, the expectation and the unity and the prayer that was happening and they're funny enough, you look at every major revival, these things keep keep appearing, it's, it's not uncommon. Just ask that as we read through the book of Acts, let's look at that in the mirror, let's enjoy that whole experience, and we don't need to preach through it aggressively, we, we're literally going to let the scripture do the talking from this point, I literally just wanted to set the scene in these first couple of chapters, so that we're not putting it in a place where we somehow have some resistance against the book of Acts in itself, we want to read it as though it's alive, as though we're hearing it for the first time, as though we're hearing it of recounting events that happened in our time so let's pray shall we dear heavenly father we thank you for your word and we thank you that your word is true now we can trust you and every word in here lord and i thank you that you have promised us your holy spirit so i pray for everything here lord that everything that happened to your disciples lord everything that happened to great men and women of old that we've uh, discussed and learned about today. I pray for us that we would know these same realities. I pray that your Holy Spirit your fire would be upon us, that we would be an effective people, Lord, in your kingdom, that we would be witnesses to your truth, that we would be witnesses throughout all the world. So Lord, we just humble ourselves and and ask that you would grant us everything you have for us in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.